following is a paid program. The views expressed by the following program are those of the sponsor and not necessarily those of 77 WABC and Red Apple Media. This is the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Here's the Globe's Editor-in-Chief, David Wildstein. You're listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour with David Wildstein, except today we're without David Wildstein. After 52 weeks, David is taking his first day off from his radio show and has asked the three of us to fill in with him. Guest hosting this week are the bipartisan team of Michael Muller, a brilliant Democratic political operative, and Al Barless, a brilliant Republican political operative, and finally me, Mickey Quinn, hopefully at least an above average Democratic political operative. What we have in common is that we're all friends. Uh, yes, this can be done across the aisle, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. But most important, what we have in common is that we're all from New Jersey, a place where there is never a dull moment in politics. Starting off with the news that's on everyone's mind, Hurricane Ida unleashed a brutal set of storms across the region this week. And jumping right into it, we had tornadoes in South Jersey and devastating flooding in North Jersey. As with everything in our state, there's an intersection with politics here. The last time there was a major environmental disaster, Chris Christie was governor and ended up being a milestone moment in his first administration, referring, of course, to Hurricane Sandy. Uh, the first question uh, goes to Al Barless, New Jersey Republican political strategist. Does something like what we saw this week have the capacity to affect the current race for New Jersey governor, do you think? No doubt about it. I think storms and, you know, Mother Nature events such as Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Ida, Hurricane Irene, uh, snowstorms can be and usually are defining moments for governors. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, the snowstorm that we had in November of 2018 and the, you know, and what, you know, people stranded on the highway in their cars, running with, the, you know, keeping their cars on, running their gas just to stay warm because they couldn't get up the hill on a highway, <clears throat> left people with a very, very poor taste of government and the response of the Murphy administration. You know, uh, many of us have all read the jokes and heard the jokes about every time we think there's going to be a flurry, now the roads get overbrined, right? And that's because that left an impression on Governor Murphy and his team. You look at that with the uh, snowstorm in Christie's first term when he was in uh, Orlando, I believe it was, at Disney World with his family, and the fallout in the aftermath of that. And I think the same will happen with Hurricane Ida. You know, so far you've got... Uh, I believe the death total right now, as of yesterday, was 23 lives lost in New Jersey so far. You know, Irene had nine, Floyd had six, Sandy had 40 people lost their lives. They're saying total around the country is about $95 billion worth of damage. And it's so it's going to be how do we handle and how does this administration handle the recovery and the aftermath? I think just as important in terms of being prepared for a storm like this, is what do you do once the storm has passed and people then begin the next phase of everyday life, which is, you know, recovery and rebuilding. You know, one of the things that's going to be really important to watch, in my opinion, is going to be sort of the price gouging that occurs after the fact, right? We heard horror stories after Sandy, contractors running away with money. You know, you're hearing stories already about, you know, uh, you know, plumbers and sort of other companies and other individuals, you know, price gouging on water heaters that were flooded out, replacements, you know, mold remediation, contractors are they going to take your money to fix your basement because it got flooded and then you never see them again. And then how does the government come in and handle that? So I think just as important 
for any governor is not just how are you ready for it, but how you handle it after the fact, because that's what, in my opinion, people are going to remember in October and early parts of November as they're still cleaning up from this and, you know, and it's time to go vote. Yeah, Michael, any any thoughts on that? Yeah, and there's an old saying that I always uh, think about when it comes to uh, gubernatorial races. And, you know, you get elected if you can win on the big ideas. What's interesting is that, you know, when you think about um, the way you get fired as a governor, usually is because you fail in the big moments. And these big moments are really you know, how governors get ju- judged, whether it's a, a storm. And I think Al laid out some, you know, really, you know, unique examples we've seen in recent years. Look, we're, we're seeing it um, also play out for governors across the country right now with a pandemic. And, you know, as I've often said about uh, Governor Murphy, you know, a lot of what was going to happen this year in the gubernatorial race is going to be judged through the three stages of, you know, could he get the state vaccinated in a in a in a way that you know would be really complete so we can get back to some normalcy? You know, will the economy then have a robust summer and we you know saw the economy then start to reopen? And how the schools reopen? I mean, those are like the the three big moments. So you know you know all tied into this you know larger you know construct. And what's interesting though, in general, from the public's perception, the public will often have low expectations of what they can expect from government at a given moment. But in these crisis moments, you know, really the expectations um, are extremely high. And so if you don't clear those bars, that's usually the way you find yourself, you know, in trouble and, and fighting, uh, you know, you know, for, uh, through an election, uh, you know, fight that then becomes, you know, different in the moment. And just a comment on the kind of the Chris Christie issues that we saw, um, you know, around Sandy, obviously it was a moment where he kind of really took off. And, you know, I've always commented, I mean, 2012, he you know, was obviously thinking early in that uh, cycle about running for president. When all that happened in October, the timing um, and how you respond is so important. And, you know, he was you know, if he was on the ballot, imagine the dynamics of uh, him and President Obama. If Chris Christie had been the nominee that year, it what wildly different election, uh, you know, politics that would have been, you know, in a you know, really tumultuous time. So it's uh, it really is the big moments that um, governors get judged over. Yeah, and I think I think to Al's point, it's something that can either be good or bad, right? I mean, uh, the intention of holding New Jersey elections in odd numbered years is to not have the atmospherics of f- what's going on at the federal level affect New Jersey. Uh, and over the last couple of years, we have not been able to experience that, right? I mean, from COVID, like Michael said, and now into what may involve federal disaster relief or any of these other things, these are things that are outside of our control. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the governor's race and the races down ballot. Yeah, I mean, and look, and sort of, look, not to, you know, dehumanize what's happened to people's lives, because, you know, I mean, when you look at some of these images and you look at some of the news coverage, I mean, it is just horrific what people are going through. Right. But I mean, it's it, 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 but politics being what it is, you know, Christie was able to take Hurricane Sandy Superstorm Sandy in Mammoth and Ocean, and show those people day in and day out after the storm left that he was committed to helping them rebuild and regain their lives prior to Superstorm Sandy making landfall. And that, I believe, 
directly correlated to him running up the score in Monmouth and Ocean Counties. If I'm Governor Murphy and you look at what happened in Mullica Hill down in South Jersey, you look at the uh, the images of Manville, Bound Brook, the uh, Somerset Patriots stadium, stadium, you know, being underwater up until the mezzanine level, right? I mean, if the governor is there not just for these people today, but tomorrow in October, in September, in October, they're going to remember that because to Mike's point, the bar is pretty low from the average person in terms of what they expect for their, from their elected official. But when something like this happens, if you're not there, Mike, you're right. You're getting fired. Right. And I think back to uh, some of these moments and the timing is so important because when you really think about it, it's, you know, what happens in hurricane season obviously is uh, one a little more predictable of when it'll occur. And so it happens to be on the heels of the, uh, the election season and that recovery moment because a hurricane can come in October and the recovery can stretch uh, much further. But, you know, some of these storms in September we've seen, and I think about, you know, there are parts of Bergen County, um, you know, where they were hit with storms and flooding. It may have not been as um, a, the, the toll we've seen of human life in some of these tragic scenarios. But I think about times when they've had flooding and, frankly, you know, it spreads you know, from governors all the way down to you know, your local mayors. Because you know, on a lot of levels, you know, when you really think about you know, some of the old jokes about you know, if, you, you know, if you pick up the trash and plow the snow and you're able uh, to make sure potholes are filled, like you'll be fine as a local official. In these moments, people are just desperate and looking for help. And during Superstorm Sandy, I, like, I think about it firsthand. I mean, I was in the middle of you know, running political campaigns, and we can seem like we're dehumanized at moments. But you know, I was also digging out with my uh, parents recovering from, you know, up in uh, up in Queens and Howard Beach at that same time. So I, I saw it firsthand, and it allowed me to look at Chris Christie through a much different prism because he was responsive uh, in a way that, frankly, at the time, um, you know, the mayor of New York City was not as responsive, uh, you know, and that was a, a challenge that uh, they had to do in their neighborhood. Well, and Mickey, you remember this because I think at that time you and I were both legislative staffers. You know, post Sandy, I mean, you know, people were without power for what you know weeks, if not you know uh, almost a month, months on end, right? And and the legislature held hearings. You were there. I mean, those guys got taken. The you know the energy uh, companies, whether it was um, um, JCPNL or PSE&G or Orange and Rockland or you know Atlantic City Electric. I mean, they all got taken to task for their preparedness and then how they dealt with it in the aftermath. You're absolutely right. You know, the phrase has often been used recently that there's no playbook in a pandemic and there's no playbook, you know, in a hundred year storm sometimes it, it seems, but as these are starting to become unfortunately, uh, seemingly more regular. I, I grew up in New Jersey and I don't remember uh, too many tornado warnings. And now it seems it's about once a month. Um, I was, I was reading that the Mount Holly uh, weather station reported more tornado warnings over the last couple of months uh, than any other weather station in the country, which you would think we were living in Kansas for something like that to happen. Uh, but, it, you know, it's going to be something where future leaders might be more and more increasingly judged on how they handle uh, tremendous, uh, you know, atmospheric events uh, or rough environmental events. Is this where you get on your soapbox about global warming, Mickey? Well, as long as the soap is biodegradable. 
He likes to talk about climate change. That's more of a, that's more of a Mickey Parler. I apologize. You're right. You're right. <laughs> so this has been a good conversation, and we're going to keep this going. Um, we have, uh, for the rest of this hour, Michael Mueller, Democratic political strategist, Al Barlas, Republican political strategist, uh, and myself, Mickey Quinn, on the Democratic side of the aisle. Uh, and you are listening right now to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. We'll be back after these messages. It's the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome back. This is Mickey Quinn, and I'm joined by Republican strategist Al Barless and Democratic strategist Michael Muller. We are filling in for David Wildstein, who's taking the weekend off, uh, and he has graciously handed over the reins, uh, perhaps at his own risk, to three people who uh, work in New Jersey politics for a living uh, and also happen to be friends with each other. Um, so... It's a bit of a uh, barstool type of conversation, right? Uh, we're, we're, these are the types of conversations that we have even when we're off the air and when we're just uh, having a drink or a coffee with one another. Uh, and we thought it would be interesting to uh, share that and, and let other folks hear what it's like when uh, some political operatives decide to break down some of the issues of the day. Um, so... Uh, gentlemen, with the release of 2020 census data, redistricting is a really hot topic in national politics today, and especially in New Jersey. Uh, the New Jersey Globe reported this week on a new law that requires incarcerated people to be counted at their last known address rather than the facility in which they are incarcerated. Uh, in one New Jersey town, that's actually equivalent to about half the population. Now, you have to draw legislative and congressional districts based on population. So Michael Mueller, Democratic political strategist, what effect do you see this having on congressional and legislative redistricting in New Jersey? It'll be it'll be very impactful um, for a number of reasons, and it seems like a little bit of an esoteric conversation. But when you when you really boil it down, we've seen in New Jersey uh, in particular, and this is not unusual. Um, we've seen this around the country. There's been a movement uh, to the cities. So take Newark and Jersey City for example. They've had population uh, growth um, coming out of the census uh, data, and there's a based on some of the population trends uh, from the prisoner reallocation, that will expand their numbers. And kind of to put it in a little bit of just the, the simplicity of it, I'll talk about the legislative side uh, in particular, because there's an, based on our state's constitution, you cannot split a municipality that is uh, smaller than the size of an ideal population for a legislative district, which that leaves only New York, New York and Jersey City as places that can have um, split population. So the, the growth there does wind up having uh, a domino effect, um, you know, as, or a waterfall effect that kind of cascades, uh, you know, through the map drawing process. And because of the inability to split uh, municipalities in the legislative process, it really does put us in a position where when you think about some of the criteria that around it from the deviation of one district to another, trying to keep population as equal as practical in that process, you know, that will be, you know, you know, an advantage, um, you know, for Democrats because there, we've seen growth um, in some key Democratic areas, and that will be an advantage in the process. Likewise, in the congressional process, um, that will be very pivotal, especially when you think about the implications, because 
three of the biggest swing districts are just to the you know west of uh, of those cities you know in congresswoman Gottheimer congresswoman uh Cheryl and then uh, you know congressman Malinowski all you know in a position where when you start looking at some of those population trends could be very impactful you know how this winds up you know shaping out as we go through um you know the redistricting process and one last point on uh, that, you know, reallocation, you know, it has the inverse impact is that there's some areas that may have census numbers that, you know, are a bit bloated because, um, as Mickey raised on the front, half the population is a facility. Uh, this is actually going, uh, you know, to uh, you know, wind up having, you know, some real impacts um, as we move into the map drawing process in the weeks ahead. You know, it's really interesting to think about some of the complications here, because, again, this is a new law in New Jersey and will be implemented for the first time. Uh, you know, it's interesting when you look at, say, Jackson, New Jersey, where 11 percent of its population uh, comes from the Federal Correction Institute that is in Fort Dix. Now, obviously, when you take away that allocation to Jackson, their population goes down. And what is Jackson next door to is Lakewood. Uh, a town of over now 130,000 people. And the implications of how you draw lines around a town that is half as big as an entire legislative district can be very challenging. And what's around it is how you build the puzzle pieces to come up to compliance with a full set of population. So once you start taking what we thought numbers were, in other words, you know what we thought an entire town's population was and changing that uh, really in the last weeks of uh, of the process between when you get data and when you start drawing maps, you know, the average citizen is probably saying, well, okay, well, why does this, you know, why does this necessarily matter to me? Uh, and the answer is that equitable representation across legislative and congressional districts is largely based on the concept of one person, one vote. If they're all different sizes, the representatives that you send to either Trenton or to Washington, D.C. will either have an outsized or diminished vote if you are, for example, undercounted in your own in your own town. Uh, and these are the types of things that uh, attorneys will be looking at, that judges will be looking at, that political strategists will be looking at uh, when they're drawing the, the maps for the next decade that will determine who represents who um, in, a, you know, in a democracy. And that's a pretty big deal. And listen, I got to say, as the uh, chair of the Republican side of legislative redistricting, if you guys want to just tell me some towns that you're putting together for districts, that would be really, really helpful to me as I go through the process. So just feel free to tell me whatever maps you're drawing, guys. No problem. It's just us. We've on the been phone. thinking. No, nobody else we, is listening. We're good. We've been thinking about expanding it to Delaware. Do you have any problems with that? I listen. I don't go below 195 anyway, so that's fine with me. Whatever you want to do. <laughs> Look, I, as, as a born and bred New Yorker, right now we're not go, we're not going to take Staten Island, but I would take parts of Queens in a heartbeat and part, some parts of Manhattan. Come on. <laughs> I couldn't tell you were from New York, Mike. <laughs> Look, it's Look, it's one I of those things. The accent's a dead giveaway. Mickey and I just worked on a project in Cuyahoga, Ohio, and they they always knew when I, I was speaking up uh, where I came from. Yeah, I would say so. Look, I think with with redistricting and sort of, and the prisoner population al reallocation, w w one of the things that to me, and I understand the public policy behind it. When you have folks that have been in prison for an extremely long period of time and they no longer have residences, to, if you've been in prison for, say, 10 years or 15 years, it's safe to assume that you have not maintained a residence on the outside. 
And if you have not maintained that residence, to allocate yourself or to be allocated to a town that you have not had any ties to for the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, it, to me, does seem a bit unfair in the process because you are, you know, in, inflating a population in, in that town. Um, but at the same time, you know, if we're going to get really nerdy on this call, you know, you've got differential privacy, which is, you know, a hidden, you know, uh, arithmetic formula created by some bureaucrat in Washington, D.C., probably with an abacus and a green visor. So nobody really knows who lives in what town anyway anymore. So it's going to be an interesting process. Uh, you guys are right. I mean, this thing is is a domino. I'm sure you guys get the same calls that I do. You know, people have ideas on, hey, I think you should put these three towns together because they would make a great district. Or you put these seven towns together and it makes a it makes a great district and so-and-so can become a legislator and, you know, that gives us this and that frees up a spot down below and down below that and everybody moves up. I think the hardest part in this process, because we've all done it, is it's not just drawing one district, right? And mm-hmm. sure, the prisoner allocation is you know has an impact on a lot of these towns as as Dave has so properly reported. But unless you sit down and do a full statewide map, you know one district or two districts or one region or you know uh, three counties, whatever, by the time you get to the north end or the south end, depending upon where you start, you're starting all over again most times. I mean, how many maps this is and how many maps did either of you or both of you draw 10 years ago or within or in this process that you started out and 10 hours later you threw the whole thing in the garbage because it didn't work. Oh, on a regular basis. And I will say one of the interesting things when you think about the process of map drawing, and I always uh, find it uh, there, are, there are plenty of lawmakers uh, that I've dealt with uh, over the course of my career that they can draw their ideal district. And uh, then you go through this process. And what people realize, if you try to draw the entire state, and now there's a lot of really fancy software out there where you have the technology that you know people can submit uh, their own maps in the, in the process – the truth of the matter is, when they start going through the process, to fit in all the criteria that we have to meet from a constitutional standpoint, and also just dealing with fairness tests and all of the important elements of drawing a, a map that makes sense, it's really hard. Like, it is really hard to do it and hit all the criteria and not have a bunch of un- unintended consequences that wind up uh, you know, blowing up the process, You know, either putting you in court or, frankly, just not being able to deliver a fair and representative map. And that's why I'll say uh, one of the things, and you know, I'll use the proper phrase, uh, gerrymandering, um, that as we talk about that over the years, it's anybody who doesn't like a map immediately goes there. The truth of the matter is, you know, more often than not, it's not because there is some sort of you know, attempt made on the map. Usually the challenge is that we've got to meet very specific criteria, and there's some really difficult challenges, and not everyone's right, going to so like let, let, a good map right, so plan. Then I've got to ask you guys a question. How did you create the greater than sign district that is District 12? Was that by accident, or did somebody say, let's try to create that? That's the only question I have. On well, I don't know what congressional. Legislative. On legislative? Look at the I map. Mean, Look at the ledge map. District 12, Senator Thompson, mm-hmm. Assemblyman yeah. Dancer, and um, uh, Clifton, the district looks like a greater than sign. 
You know, I actually had never <laughs> thought about it that way. But in all reality, how we really probably wound up there is the story a next town over is where the 11th legislative district became a minority opportunity district. And a lot of people cried foul when we said that in the process by choosing together Neptune, Asbury, Long Branch, that we were never going to elect a, minor, a, a candidate of color in this process. And now we've got State Senator Vinco Powell uh, in there in you know, in a seat that, frankly, we fulfilled that promise. So, and that's, I think, sometimes when you try to create those minority opportunity districts, you do have some uh, other districts that may not, uh, you know, look as compact as they could be. But that's also a challenge. We have odd-shaped municipalities in the state, so compactness is really tough on us. Well, we got to cut in here, guys. I thought Michael was going to be offended as a Jets fan at the green visor reference, um, but I don't know if hey, his I'm capacity... I'm a Jets fan, too, so we're okay. Well, I don't well, know if his capacity... Well, I don't know if his capacity to be to be disappointed even exists anymore at this point. So we're going to wrap up this segment here. Uh, this is Mickey Quinn. <laughs> this is Mickey Quinn along with Michael Muller and Al Barless. We're guest hosting for David Wildstein. We'll be right back to talk to you about some technology in elections and campaigns. So don't go away. You won't want to miss this. You're listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. The New Jersey Globe Power Hour is on. Talk Radio 77 WABC. You're listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour with a bipartisan team of three political strategists discussing this week's news in New Jersey and all things politics. Um, So uh, as we all do this for a living, uh, this has this as a profession has evolved over time in many different ways, uh, running campaigns, reaching out to voters uh, and and Michael and I in particular. our, our sort of co-leads on um, uh, state state election races and have been for uh, several several cycles uh, and and we've watched a lot of technology evolve and change over those times so uh, Michael in, 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 is politics the same as marketing I mean when you look at how campaigns are changing the way they reach voters particularly in the digital age of covid and social distancing um, what kind of trends have you seen? Um, you know, as we move to a more mobile way of communicating. And it's it's really been uh, eye-opening. I do feel old because uh, when I think back to when I first started, uh, you know, dealing with uh, politics, you know, you frankly, it was uh, it was revolutionary to do something uh, that everyone has come to hate, and those are robo-phone calls. So uh, the technology has changed, and in a way that, frankly, you're able to much more have a type of marketing approach where you can think about individuals and know that you're able to target them um, from a, a standpoint of whether it's their mobile device and you're, and you're sending them a text or feeding uh, digital ads directly to them. But it has put you into a position and with big data, which I know after the 2016 presidential got like a, uh, a bad rap. But the truth of the matter is there's an ability that we we actually do know a lot about the people we're trying to communicate with. And we've actually learned how best to communicate with those individuals. Because I can think only like five years ago, there was a sense that, well, if you want to communicate with someone digitally, you're just talking to this young group of voters. But, you know, I'll use my father as an example. He's in, he's in his mid-70s. He'll be on his tablet. He's checking out the news. If you're going to get him, you're not necessarily going to get him because you're sending him a, a, a piece of direct mail. Or you're going to get him because you're going to be in a position where you've decided you're advertising on, on shows that hit people that age demographic. 
you're able to talk to them directly as they're just moving through their day. And that's changed in a big way, also just from the way we organize, you know, the boots on the ground conversation, going out there and knocking on doors, and the pandemic was more challenging. But when you add together, you know, organizing moved to a virtual space because pretty much anybody who operates in society has gotten used to the idea, whether you're a senior and you're using telemedicine, which has become now video chats, or you're somebody who for your job is relying on Zoom and Microsoft meetings and such, we're able to talk to people in very, very unique and targeted ways. We do video calls directly to voters now. That is, it really has changed the whole paradigm. And we've actually got on some levels even more personal than we did before because it's harder to reach people. And we've opened up a whole new lane to be able to reach people. So let yeah, me absolutely. ask you guys this. Let, let me ask you this. I'm going to give you a hypothetical scenario, right? Let's say you're a uh, you're the chair of a party that's in the minority in their county in a county that is heavily of the other party. Let's let's say you're in a heavily Democratic county, right? And there's a hypothetical situation; it's not based on anybody in real life, <laughs> right? And so this Republican chair is trying to is trying to give advice to his local candidates who are trying to win at the municipal level. Uh, yeah, I don't know, in let's say a town of maybe six or 7,000 people that once used to be Republican but is now trending the other way because you've got a lot more apartments and a more vibrant downtown. Um, I don't know, let, let, let's say the town kind of rhymes with Caldwell, right? Something like that. Uh, <laughs> what advice would you give to candidates so now all kidding aside, what advice would you guys give to candidates who are in those types of races where you're in the minority party, so fundraising isn't necessarily something you have a tremendous ability to do, but you want to get your message out there and you want to take advantage of limited resources in terms of dollars to spend, but at the same time, get the most bang for your buck other than just telling your candidates, hey, you need to go knock on, you know, every door in town three times. Yeah, and I think I, I think one of the most interesting facts that I've come across that I've learned, you know, that I feel is a fact is that e even through all of the technology that we're talking about, even through all of the developments that we've made uh, in terms of very advanced ways of campaigning or marketing or whatever, however you want to think of it, um, you know, to your point about knocking on doors, Al, uh, it's there's, there's a reason why that is still some of the most fundamental advice that people give, because every piece of technology that we're using is ultimately attempting to replicate the concept of sitting across a kitchen table and having a conversation with a voter. Right. So uh, whether you're doing, you know, in this day and age, whether you're doing Zoom calls where you are uh, where you're trying to you know bring a smaller section of the community together that maybe can't all leave the house or you know, or, or, or it's difficult in COVID, for example, to have larger gatherings at some times. Uh, all you're doing is trying to replicate the oldest thing in the book, which is knocking on somebody's door and politely asking if they would consider giving you their vote. So while knocking on every door, obviously, like you said, Al, is not the answer, nor is it always feasible or functional. Uh, whatever you can do to to get to people where they live, literally and figuratively, um, and have them feel comfort that you are somebody who's a real person, you're not just a name on paper, uh, and that you are actually part of the community that you're in and being seen in that community is the way to do that. Uh, and it's a super important way to make sure that voters 
have a level of comfort with you um, and, and understand that you're willing to look them in the eye um, and, and, and have a conversation about what actually matters to them. And I'll, I'll jump in for a second on this because, I mean, I'll give the real-life example. I thought there's some excellent points uh, by, uh, by Mickey there. But in uh, 2018, there's a you know, town in South Jersey, Mount Laurel, that has frankly been you know, Republican uh, control for 36 years at that point. Um, you know, there was no Democrats on, uh, on council. And our now mayor, um, Stephen Stedlick, wound up running that race, banging on doors. That's actually how he built up this campaign. But as a young guy who was very tech savvy, he really did push in to use a lot of new technology. Everything that he was, uh, was doing when he was out there on a doorstep was also being amplified back in the community. He created a bit of a, a buzz. He became a bit of, of, of a viral sensation during the campaign. And what was interesting is that two years later, when we were the height of a pandemic and we were chasing the majority, since I'm the chairman in Mount Laurel, I know what it's like to try to take out the, you know, the majority when you're being outspent. We were then in a challenge. What do you do? How do you now communicate? And one of the interesting you know, pieces of technology, which wasn't expensive because we didn't have the big bucks to do it, but I thought it was really interesting, we started doing text messaging where the voter could actually agree to join a video call directly. And we had our three council candidates literally having video chats. It was like they were on their doorstep because ultimately the biggest lesson out of all this is that it's the human relationship, the ability to ask for that vote. You know, look someone, usually you'd say eyeball to eyeball, well, this from screen to screen. But if you can accomplish that, like that's how you win over. Because on local races, a lot of times you can cut through the partisanship and you can win on a community issue or that relatability that you, someone that you believe will be on your side. I agree yeah. with that. And that's why I would say to you, you know, one of the other things to, to the listeners out there, I would say is as you're talking about recruiting candidates, right? And, and Mike, you know this, Mickey, you know this, especially at the local level, right? Forget legislature or county for a second, is you want people who have roots in the community, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you, you can't just pluck somebody who moved to town six months ago or a year ago and say, all right, let's run you for you know, for council or for mayor. You don't necessarily have to be on the council to be mayor, but you you have to have some roots in the community where, like you said, Mike, people don't see party, right? They see person. Oh, I know Joe Smith because, you know, he he and I coach our kids' little league team together. Or I know, you know, Fran whatever because she and I are involved in a 100 different things in our kids' school programs after school and, and things of that nature, right? Or this person runs a local daycare, and so everybody knows who they are, right? Things like that. Yeah, and I, I would add, I would add to that, and I'm sure you've seen this, Al and and Michael as well. I, some of the most successful local candidates that I've seen are teachers, because yeah. a, you know, of course, it's a respected profession, but b, you've touched multiple generations of families' lives in all likelihood, um, you know, in, in a very significant positive way. So to your point about being part of the community. Um, you know, that becomes something where people can attest to your character and, and such. I've seen people, you know, flip flip towns in terms of partisanship where maybe they're a Republican running in a Democratic town. And it didn't matter because that's not how anybody was looking at it through the prism of, you know, big national politics and putting on a red jersey or a blue jersey. Uh, it's, it's all about what kind of connection you actually have to the community. And to that point, when you look at uh, technology, which is, you know, where we started off here, when we're you know, the force multiplier of being able to do things that you couldn't ordinarily do. I mean, you know, as a Democrat, would I like to have Cory Booker at all of my GOTV rallies? I mean, yeah, I would. 
but I can only ask so much of his time. But if we're doing Zooms or if we're doing these other things or having somebody, you know, a great national figure come from out of state into state, you know, that used to be a barrier. They'd have to get an airplane ticket or a train ticket or whatever the case may be. Now, you know, you can you can pull people around a virtual table, so to speak, uh, and talk directly to them uh, in a way that maybe you couldn't before. So there's a lot of, you know, not a lot of positive coming out of COVID, but uh, the, the, you know, the way we've learned to embrace technology in a greater way, uh, certainly a, a, a good unintended uh, consequence. Truly. And I think one of the big uh, impacts that that we're going to see is that this is going to be a lot more of the norm, because when you, you really think about, you know, communications and the way this is uh, changed, you know, it puts us in place like the responsibility of trying to get in front of the public and do it in a, in a meaningful way. It's more inclusive. I think we've already seen whether it's on a municipal uh, you know, level when you start thinking about, you know, community meetings, how many people show up at town hall for, you know, for a meeting versus how many people are showing up when they've had virtual, you know, we've watched it 10, 12 fold, you know, when there's a, a hot issue being discussed because, you know, we're now making it more available for people. And that's, that is a, a good positive impact after, you know, what's been a horrific year and a half oh no doubt about it right i mean people have lives and you know most people to your point right you couldn't get to a council meeting because 7 30 on a monday doesn't work because you're doing homework with the kids or you're putting the kids to bed or you know it's you know bath time whatever it may be or just 10 other things you got going on in life but to be able to do it you know from your kitchen table with the video camera off and on mute absolutely it, it has definitely increased public participation and you guys are right that's a that's a great thing you know, one, one of the other byproducts I found, and this is purely anecdotal, but looking at COVID, it was a time where, uh, you know, people were scared and concerned and they actually wanted to hear from their government. So you saw a reemergence of town halls and you saw more sort of proactive outreach on both sides of, of people to their government, government to the people they represent. Uh, and there was sort of a new dialogue that happened because uh, obviously everybody now was socially engaged because you kind of had to be. So, uh, you know, that was another thing that through technology that was able to be facilitated. Uh, and so, you know, as we look to wrap up this segment, we're going to move on uh, on the other side of the commercial break to one that I think we all like, which is, you know, we've got a group of bipartisan uh, political players here. Um, and we wanted to talk a little bit about how that actually works, being friends, being colleagues, working with each other, working against each other. You won't want to miss it. I'm here with Al Barless, Republican strategist, Michael Mueller, Democratic strategist. We're guest hosting for David Wildstein. Uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Here's the Globe's editor-in-chief, David Wildstein. Well, welcome back. This is actually Mickey Quinn, and I'm joined by uh, Al Barless, a Republican political operative, and Michael Muller, a Democratic political operative. Uh, we're filling in for David Wildstein, who's taking the weekend off. He will be back next week, uh, most likely, unless we replace him. Maybe. Uh, due to yeah, due to our due to our performance here today, we'll have to see. We'll leave him on pins and needles. Uh, so, listen, this is fun. We have three people here who are friends, as well as political operatives who work across the aisle from one another, and sometimes even in direct competition with one another. Uh, I think there's a sense that we're so polarized now that it's impossible to break bread the way people used to back in the, you know, the quote, good old days. Um, you know, Al, you and I belong to opposite parties, and we've always gotten along, uh, and it's never been difficult to work together. Um, other than my charm, why do you think that is? 
Well, there's also your winning personality and 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 your smile. Um, and you and I have a similar haircut that also works too for you. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I you know I think the the reason why guys like us have relationships or we all have relationships with folks of the other party is two things. First of all, I don't know about you guys, but I don't have any one friend that I could point to outside of this business who I agree with 100% on everything about, right? And so if I don't have that there, why can't I have that with guys like you or anybody else, right, or former colleagues or current colleagues? And the other thing I think is you got to get the jokes. You got to get the joke in life, both personally and professionally, right? And that's you have a job to do. Mike's got a job to do. I got a job to do. As long as we're not attacking each other's families, it's it's work. You're playing to win. I'm playing to win. And there's no reason why we can't respect what the other person has to do professionally and separate that from how we are with each other personally. And that's just my personal opinion. And that's why I think it works, because we, we all get the joke amongst ourselves. Yeah, no doubt. And I have to say, one of the really uh, you know interesting parts when you you know really break it down. Look, this is also this is really hard work. It's competitive. You know, it's for all of us. Though we're not going to ever play professional sports, but this is our competitive arena that we play in, and you know, it's, and we do what we believe in. But at our core, you know, it's you know. We all have a, a love of country and state and our community. We have our, you know, we have our patriotism, even though we disagree ideologically, which is how a democracy is supposed to work. And you should be able to break bread and have a drink and, you know, and be able to have friendships, even though there's some areas that you think there's a better path forward. But believing that there's a better path forward, you know, the fact that you're willing to put your time, effort, your blood, sweat, and tears into trying to do the right thing to help our society move forward, you know, we have to embrace the concept, even though we disagree, you know, in the means at times. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and the thing about New Jersey, when you talk, when you drill down specifically to New Jersey politics, it's a small state. Uh, we may have 9 million people, but the people who do this for a living and do it year after year uh, are pretty, pretty few. Uh, so what ends up happening is, yeah, we may have to disagree on this. We may even have to go to battle over it. Uh, but there's going to be something that we're going to agree on a year from now. And one of our bosses or one of our clients or somebody that we work for, uh, or, you know, uh, something we take on ourselves may end up, we may have a unity of purpose on something, um, you know, a year from now or two years from now. So, uh, I look at it, you know, similar to the way I think that I'm going to guess that, you know, defense attorneys and prosecutors probably look at it case by case basis. Sometimes we're going to have the same, uh, you know, the same agenda moving forward. Sometimes we're not, but we got to get back in the room next week and do this all over again. Uh, and so there's no reason to take it personally. Like, like, like Al said, families are off limits. Um, you know, uh, there's no reason to bring this into a personal level when we all have a job to do and our job is defined by oftentimes adversity. Um, and it's a zero sum game, especially with elections. Only one person's going to win in a two person election. Um, but then you get back on the horse if you're the one who lost, uh, and you go take it to the next fight. Yeah, absolutely. Look, and I would also say having, having friends with different viewpoints in life, it, it only makes you better. Right. If you're willing to sort of look at the world outside of your own 
prism of the way either you were brought up or the way that you live or, you know, sort of the, the things that we have every day in our lives, it only makes you better. I learn things from you guys on campaigns. I learn things from you guys on not on how the other side looks at issues. Maybe there's viewpoints that I didn't think of because that's not sort of how my brain functions. And, and hopefully I've been able to do the same with you guys. I mean, when you talk about it, you know, we we come pro up have come up professionally from uh, by working for people who believe in bipartisanship and across the aisle relationships, right? Like my former boss, Senator O'Toole, uh, your guys's current boss, former boss, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, Senate President Steve Sweeney, or you know, Majority Leader Lou Greenwald, right? Like I mean, they all got along. They were all able to accomplish major public policy initiatives together because they respected the other person's differing viewpoint and never let that cross over to where you can't have a conversation with that person. Yeah. And I don't say like, you know, and I've been really a lot of what formed my uh, you know early thoughts to my career. I like I grew up in New York uh, politics. I wound up uh, in working in the state legislature early in my career. And at the time, I had a Republican majority in the state Senate, a Democratic majority in the state assembly. And uh, I was there for both the, you know, you know, Governor Mario Cuomo's time makes me sound really old as I say that to the early days of Governor George Pataki. And so to me, it was just it was normal that, yeah, you had to figure out if you're going to get something done, you know, because you don't want to see the constant gridlock. Wait, because Mike, Mike, wait, wait, Mike, are you saying that having divided government is a good thing? Is that, is I think divided government is a good thing in certain circumstances, Great. not in New Jersey. Oh, okay. I thought not right for here because we've got a great bipartisan mixture oh, here that no. we can work together, and you can have a very strong minority. I love the fact that you know you have probably the the strongest uh, you know you know just uh, my, minority that's been sometimes uh, on the verge of uh, being uh, you know in super minority status. I want you to have I, a super I minority. Were, I thought so you were signaling to me that you wanted to divvy up the legislature. You know, one party gets the Senate, the other party gets the Assembly as we're drawing maps. That's fine, too. No, I, I mean, that's, look, if that's what look, you're I mean, look, and, and now, and now, that's, that's the thing that's really. Come on, please. You want a super minority. That's how good I want it to be for you. Yeah, no, absolutely. You guys have done a great job of growing your minority over years. Um, you know, and I think that, that that's been truly impressive. And we do like divided government. We divide Democrats among the executive branch, the Senate and the Assembly. And uh, that we find that works very well for us. Okay. Except when you shut down government. Because you can't decide which tax to raise enough. I think we actually Leave fought the... against uh, those tax uh, hikes. Uh, they, they shut down uh, during the uh, Joe Roberts, John Corzine era was because we were fighting for property tax relief. So I feel like you should get a good bumper sticker out there uh, for uh, you know, supporting I'm, us after that. I'm, I'm trying to remember the party of the last governor who presided over a shutdown. I just, it's escaping me. Yeah, I don't know either. I don't know either. I gotta, <laughs> where's Dave when you need him? Hey, there were lots of shutdowns during that era. <laughs> Oh boy! All right. Uh, so See, but this, look, this goes to our point, right? We could we could do it. We could we could argue. We could have fun at the same time. You guys can be Democrats. I can be a Republican. You guys can gang up on me like you just did. And you know what? We're still friends, and that's okay. <laughs> that's a good thing, actually. Super minority. It'll be it'll be amazing. Both changes. Hey, two Common. two against one. Two against one is equal representation for most of the uh, most of the redistricting maps you guys tend to put out. So you know wow. that's fine. We'll, we'll figure out. We we'll figure out a way to get along right now. This is good. See, this is what I I, I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> I knew you guys needed two Democrats 
to there take me on. There was no way we could go one-on-one because it just wouldn't have been a fair fight. That's kind of what the state as a whole, except, you know, frankly, uh, maybe our congressional delegation where, you know, it should be more like 11-1, but that's okay. <laughs> it was for a minute. <laughs> it will be again. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and yes, like, like Al said, that was, I think, David's point in asking us to do this was to say, look, you know, we can take shots at each other. We can, uh, you know, uh, have pretty good humor about things that are really serious to us. I mean, this is what we do for a living. Uh, and we don't do it 40 hours a week. You know, we do it with as, basically as many hours as we can possibly fill. I know I speak for Al and Michael on that. Uh, this is a life also. Uh, and so uh, we do the best we can uh, and we do break bread with one another. And, you know, hopefully it's uh, a model for folks maybe down in D.C. to uh, not always take themselves so seriously, um, but do take their work seriously. But, you know, uh, uh, be decent to one another. So we're going to end on that. Um, this is Mickey Quinn. Uh, I'm here with Michael Muller and Al Barless. We've been hosting today while David Wildstein took the weekend off. He will be back next week. Thanks for listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC.